Welcome back to U.S. History from the Middle with me, Mrs. Duffy. This episode, we're going to be talking about the Civil War. And I know that the Civil War is a lot to cover in one episode. So let me be very clear, spoiler alert, disclaimer, all that fun stuff. We are not doing the entire Civil War. We are doing the basics. We are doing what you need to know in order to survive my class. So if you came here looking for a comprehensive, full-scale history of the Civil War, you are knocking on the wrong door. You're in the wrong place. So just a heads up to that, but I'd like you to sit back, relax, and get ready for the Civil War. Last episode, we spent a good deal, significant amount of time looking at the causes of the Civil War and how sectionalism, manifest destiny, westward expansion, bleeding Kansas, Dred Scott, all of those things rolled up into one big ball cause the Civil War. But like every good war, like every good major historical event, these background causes are the building blocks to the war, but there is something that sparks it, lights it up, and that's what we're starting with today is what takes all of these these foundations that we talked about and what ignites them into causing half of the country to fight the other half of the country. And that's where our discussion starts today. We're looking at this guy. He's tall. He's got a beard. He's got a tall hat. You may recognize him based on my description. Yep, we're starting with President Abraham Lincoln. But we're starting with Lincoln before Lincoln was even a president. Because in order to understand what comes next, you got to go back a little bit to the beginning. So President Abraham Lincoln, before he was president, he was a one-term senator from Illinois. Illinois being a fairly new state, Lincoln being born in Illinois, born and raised, ran for Senate against this guy, Stephen Douglas. And the most famous debates, law students, public speakers, debaters, historians, everybody goes back to the debates between Lincoln and Stephen Douglas because they were some of the most heated debates, some of the most well-spoken debates in American history. And they are still famous and well-known today. They're called the Lincoln-Douglas debates. While Lincoln was running against Stephen Douglas for the Senate seat in Illinois, the issue of slavery, of course, came up. It was the issue of the day. And Abraham Lincoln made several statements about slavery. And like anybody, any politician, any any person in general, Lincoln's view progressed, evolved, changed as time went on to be what it, what it was. So in the beginning, Lincoln was kind of fumbling around, didn't really know how to articulate or say what his position was. Eventually, Lincoln figures out how to tell people what his stance is, and his stance is this. He is not pro-slavery. But he is not anti-slavery either. He is one of those in between. And that is what people are very 
sketchy about Lincoln at first because he doesn't necessarily say that he is for slavery or that he is against slavery. He is somewhere in the middle. And his middle ground is this. He doesn't want to end slavery. But he doesn't necessarily want to expand it either. He thinks that slavery should continue to exist where it already exists. There's no need to expand it, but there's no need to end it either. And this opinion is what, among other things, gets Lincoln elected to the Senate seat in Illinois. A couple years later, when Lincoln is now going to run for president, this stance and these words will come back to haunt him as most of you are going to find out in your lifetime if you haven't found it out already what something that you say will always come back and be like thrown in your face or or you know oh did you know that you said this you know and like four years ago at such and such time lincoln is experiencing that now the transcripts from the lincoln douglas debates are coming back to haunt him in his presidential bid in his presidential run and he is constantly having to answer for his stance on slavery. Northerners love his position on slavery, right? Because we talked about not every Northerner wants to end slavery, but they want to keep it where it is. They're not openly, you know, most of them are not openly protesting and parading and marching down the street saying end slavery now. Most of them are just not in my backyard. I don't want it here. You want it, you keep it. So that's basically Lincoln's stance is to each their own. You keep it, you want it, that's fine with me, just don't expand it any further than where it already exists. Election of 1860, Lincoln is not even on the ballot in 10 of the Southern states, meaning Southerners could not vote for him. <clears throat> Southerners hated Lincoln. They hated his position on slavery. They thought he was trying to limit slavery. And his name doesn't even appear to be voted for in 10 Southern states. He is the Republican candidate, which I know sounds surprising, but in 1860, the platforms for Republicans and Democrats were actually flip-flopped than what they are today. So the Republican party is actually the party that ended slavery. The Democratic party was the racist party, was the pro-slavery party back in the days of the Civil War. So Lincoln was the Republican candidate from Illinois, and he ran against a Southerner from a slave state, John Breckinridge from Kentucky. He wins the election of 1860, despite the fact that he was not on the ballot in 10 Southern states, despite the fact that he could not be voted for, he still wins the election of 1860. And South Carolina, of course, is the most outspoken opponent of Abraham Lincoln. Quick side note, throughout history, South Carolina has always been a little cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. They've always been a little crazy. They've always looked for reasons to secede, to break away. They're like your younger sibling. Hear me out here. Your younger sibling, even if you look at them sideways or you trip over their feet by accident, they're always the one looking for tattling or a problem. They're always looking for some sort of drama. You may have that friend 
or those friends who are always looking to start something, always looking for, you know, thinking people are against them, looking to start trouble, looking to start drama. That is South Carolina. That is historically, that has been South Carolina. They are always the ones feeling like everybody is out to get them some sort of drama queen nonsense. So South Carolina, to no one's surprise, is openly outspoken against Abraham Lincoln. And they are the first ones literally days after Lincoln is elected to throw out the word secession. They're going to leave the union. This is not our president. You couldn't even vote for him in South Carolina. How the heck is he supposed to represent South Carolina? So the Cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs people down in South Carolina have decided that they are going to start the process of leaving the United States and creating their own country, a state of one. Okay. And they just, declare that the election of Abraham Lincoln is a hostile act. That's, those are fighting words. Okay. Those are, those are like your mama words. Okay. So you declare something a hostile act. You're like saying it's a bad, you know, it's a bad your mama joke. They also said that increasing hostility on the part of the non-slaveholding states to the institution of slavery. Meaning by the electing Abraham Lincoln, they are he is a threat to slavery, and non-slaveholding states are now creating a threat, a hostile environment for slavery. Again, very dramatic. And then finally, for good measure, our good friend, the fugitive slave law, comes back one more time, and South Carolina says that because of the refusal of the free states, to enforce the fugitive slave law, we have got to go. You're not going to respect our rights as a state. So remember I told you how states' rights and slavery would kind of have that ping pong match. They would kind of come back and forth and historians debate whether or not it was a state's rights or a slavery issue. Well, here we go. South Carolina is saying, you're not willing to enforce these laws. You're infringing on my rights as a state. Therefore, I'm gone. Peace out. See you later. Deuces. I'm gone. So South Carolina secedes. What they do next really sets the stage for the entire war. Lincoln is not recognizing that South Carolina has seceded. He's saying this is illegal. He's not even president yet. And he's like, you didn't secede. This isn't happening. This isn't possible. You're not allowed to do this kind of a thing. South Carolina sends its Confederate troops, its militia, to Fort Sumter, which is a teeny tiny island with a fort in the middle of Charleston Bay. And it's to pre- it, this is to prevent a naval attack on the city of Charleston, which is the capital of South Carolina, therefore protecting South Carolina from a naval invasion or a naval attack. 6,000 Carolina militiamen went to protect the island of Fort Sumter. Problem, Fort Sumter is still a Union fort. There are still Union soldiers there on, on the island of Fort Sumter, at the fort itself. They're still there. They're living there. They're, they're stationed there. So a couple months go by and five other states have seceded since South Carolina pulled the trigger and said, hey, this is what we're doing. 
couple months have gone by at this point, other states are seceding, and the Navy has to resupply Fort Sumter, which everyone knew was coming. It was, you know, the, the soldiers that were <clears throat> in the fort itself were more or less waiting for this resupply. They, they were working on the, the smallest, tiniest rations, trying to avoid a resupply while the militia was surrounding the fort. They got to a point where they, they needed supplies, they needed food, and et cetera, et cetera. Lincoln warns the governor of South Carolina and says, hey, we are not here to attack. We are here to supply these men with food and supplies, things that they need in order to survive. Lincoln knows that this could potentially be an issue. He is now the president and he's saying, hey, I need to resupply my men. Among the people who show up at Fort Sumter to defend the fort are students at the military academy in South Carolina, which is known as the Citadel. 6,000 people show up that day on April 10th, 1861, and are prepared to defend Fort Sumter from what they assume is going to be an attack. Despite the fact that Lincoln has already said, this is not an attack, this is a resupply, these men need food, you know, we come in peace kind of a thing. It's unclear which human being is credited with actually firing the first shot, but it was the Carolina militia and the Citadel students who fire on the naval resupply ships, thus starting the Civil War. The first shots fired came from a Confederate or a, from a Confederate rifle at a Union naval ship. After 34 hours of fighting, the Union withdraws. They know that this is a no-win situation for them. They put up their white flag, and they back away slowly, and the first shots of the Civil War have been fired. Following the attack on Fort Sumter, following the first shots of the Civil War, the rest of the Confederacy secedes from the Union, including Virginia. Virginia does not secede from the Union until after Fort Sumter. They wait until there really truly is a war and then Virginia has to decide what side it's on. General Lee was a Virginian. His, his home is actually in Arlington. Arlington National Cemetery was actually Lee's plantation. And Lee was going to go and fight for the Union. He was actually the Union general. And then when Virginia seceded, Lee said to Lincoln, I cannot fight against my neighbors, my brothers, my family. He said, I need to go fight on whatever side Virginia is on. And Lee gives up the, the being the commander of the Union forces, coming to the Confederacy and is appointed the general of the Confederate forces by Confederate President Jefferson Davis.
once the war starts, after the initial shots fired at Fort Sumter and the other five states secede, then at, now we're in a full swing of the Civil War. There are four states that we have not spoken about that are not Union, but they're not Confederate either. They are what I'm going to call the border states. They are Delaware, West Virginia, Kentucky, and Missouri. They are four slave states that have chosen not to secede from the Union. And the biggest thing about these border states is that everything President Lincoln does during the Civil War is to keep these four states from seceding. Because if they secede, one or all four of them secede, he loses his geographic boundary. They are literally the border, a buffer zone between the Union and the Confederacy, but it also tips the, the scale to the Confederacy having an advantage. Right now, they're about even in terms of how many states and how many people are on each side, except if you add these border states one way or the other, it kind of tips the scales in either direction. So the border states are going to come back later on in this episode and be super important. So I wanted to mention them now that we've talked about the war kicking off. I am not a military historian. I'm giving you that heads up now. Um, I like what happens before the wars. I like the effects of the wars. But what actually goes on in the war itself, the, the arms, the, the weapons, the tactics, the battle plans, none of that's really my jam. It's not where my love of history lies. And if that is your jam and you do want to know more, you are welcome to go and look into it. Ask me a question. If I can't answer it, we'll both research it. But I'm not going to go into the nitty gritty of the battle history. But... There is one battle I do want to spend some time on. Actually, two battles. The first battle I want to spend some time on is the Battle of Gettysburg. It is the only battle that, that happens in the North. It happens in Gettysburg, Pennsylvania. And even today, it is an extremely famous battlefield. There is a national park, a museum on the Betty Gettysburg battlefield. You can go and visit and as crazy and as creepy as that sounds, it's actually a really cool, fascinating place, especially if you are a history nerd like myself. But the Battle of Gettysburg is considered a turning point in the Civil War. And that's really one of the main reasons why I like to talk about it. Aside from the fact that it is the only battle that happens in the North, it is the turning point. It is at this point at the Battle of Gettysburg that Grant and his forces are actually able to repel or push back Lee and the Confederate forces. It is the first time that the Union in the Civil War has caused the Confederacy to retreat and pull back. Not to mention it is probably one of the bloodiest, if not the bloodiest battle of the Civil War. It is so deadly and so bloody that they just start burying the bodies right at Gettysburg. They, they take the battlefield and they make it a cemetery. And Abraham Lincoln goes and he visits the Gettysburg Cemetery 
and where he gives his famous four score and seven years ago Gettysburg Address, where he talks about reuniting the nation and talks about the forefathers, and this is not what they envisioned. Gettysburg Address, super famous, given here after several months after the Battle of Gettysburg. And if it sounds, again, like Miss Duffy's coming up with little tidbits of history, and I am coming up with little tidbits of history. The photograph taken of Abraham Lincoln at the Battle of Gettysburg almost didn't happen. Because, one, the, the battlefield smelled disgusting because it had all of these dead and decaying bodies because, you know, even a couple months later, they were still trying to bury bodies. So the, the battlefield, the cemetery didn't smell so great. And his speech was so short that the photographer almost didn't capture the photo. Now, the photography during the Civil War is not like photography now where you whip out your iPhone or you whip out your Samsung Galaxy and you, you know, take a flash burst of, you know, a thousand pictures. No, the cameraman had to set up his camera. Once he pressed the button, then he had to keep that camera still for about a half hour to an hour while the picture developed onto this metal plate. And then from the metal plate, it was transferred to paper. It was called a daguerreotype. So again, because the speech is so short, the photo almost doesn't happen. But Lincoln goes and he gives his famous Gettysburg address at the Gettysburg battlefield. The other battle I want to talk to you about is another one of Miss Duffy's fun facts of history. So bear with me and excuse me. So first Manassas or the battle or the first battle of Bull Run, they are the same battle, but they were called different things depending on if you were a Confederate or a Union soldier. So if you were a Confederate soldier, it was known as the first Manassas or the battle of, you know, battle of Manassas, which happened right up Prince William Parkway from Fred Lynn, about half hour, 45 minutes, you can go visit the battlefield. There's trails that you can go hiking, you can go and look at some of the houses that are on the plantation, plantations, where the battlefield happened. Very cool place. Or if you are a were a Union soldier, it was known as the Battle of Bull Run or the first Bull Run. There's a battle that occurs in the same location twice. So they call it first bull run and second bull run. But that's not the reason why I'm telling you about from the battle, the first battle of bull run. The first battle of bull run occurred on July 21st, 1861. Not important to remember that date, but I'm telling you the date for a reason. So w Wilmer McLean is a plantation owner in Manassas. And he, by no chance, no, excuse me, no say so of his own, was forced to accept Confederate generals into his home, eat his food, sleep in his barn. He did actually did not allow the, the not the generals, the officers and their soldiers to, stay in his home. He had young daughters. 
and did not want the soldiers or the officers living in his home and sleeping in his home. So he said, if you're going to force me to keep you here, I'm going to make you sleep in the barn. You are not sleeping in the house with my young daughters. So Wilmer McLean and his family, they're sitting down to, to, to breakfast or dinner. I don't remember what meal it was, but they were sitting down at the table and a shots are fired, a cannonball, you know, rolls up their front lawn and explodes the front of their house. Everybody's fine inside the home. But Wilmer McLean knows very, very quickly that he cannot keep his family in Manassas. He has to move. So they pack up their family. They pack up the few slaves that they had. He was not a guy who owned, you know, a, a ton of slaves. I think they had maybe five. Not saying that owning a human being is, any human being is, and it, it's a tragedy, but the point of the story is that Wilmer McLean does not leave his slaves. He takes his slaves with him and his wife and his daughters. His wife is pregnant with, with another child and he takes his whole family and he moves them to Appomattox, Virginia. Appomattox is further south, a little bit more inland, and he's thinking this is how he's going to escape the war. He's going to hide his family in Appomattox to escape the war, to avoid the war itself. And he does a really good job of that for a really long time. Uh, Wilmer McLean is a grocer, meaning he buys and sells groceries and during the war, he expands his business to basically anything. He, he's a what is known as a blockade runner. So he pays a lot of money to smuggle things through the Union blockade of the South. So he is paying an extreme amount of money to have the finest fabrics, sugar, things that couldn't get through normally get through on Mr. McLean's boats because he has paid a very, very good amount of money to get to these items. And then the people who are buying them pay Will a lot of money because these are very rare items at the time. So he moves his family to this beautiful mansion in Appomattox, Virginia, and he and his family managed to escape the war for quite a while. Until the last few months of the war. And as the war is winding down and we're getting to April of 1865, almost, you know, a little less than four years from the actual cannonball rolling through his front yard, Will McLean gets a knock at the door. And it is a Union soldier who says, I've admired your house, sir, and we are looking for a place where Grant and Lee can surrender, where Lee can surrender to Grant, sign the treaty, sign the agreement, and end the war. This is Will McLean's biggest nightmare, is he has gone all the way to Appomattox to avoid the war, and here it is, the war is back on his doorstep. And so he obviously can't say no, so 
the soldiers come in and they promptly go and they sit in his very formal living room and they fall asleep while they are waiting for Lee and Grant to get to his home to sign this peace agreement or this surrender. Grant arrives first, Lee arrives after Grant, and Lee arrives in full military dress uniform. His saber, he's a West Point graduate, so he is the poster child of refinement and sophistication because he honestly believed that Grant was going to take him as prisoner. So Lee shows up to look his best because if he's going to be taken prisoner, he is going to go down in the finest respect possible. Grant does not take Lee as his prisoner, but Lee is assuming that this is what is going to happen. So the two sides close the door to the living room and the peace surrender was signed. Grant leaves, Lee leaves, both thanking the McLean family for their hospitality. And then their staff and their soldiers start leaving. And one walks out with a chair from Will McLean's living room, a table. They all, these soldiers want is a souvenir from the chair Lee sat in and the chair Grant sat in and the table, the peace treaty was signed. And oh, this, this candlestick was in the room. And so they're looting Will McLean's living room. And he's attempting to stop them. And then all of a sudden he hears his youngest daughter. Now, throughout the war, his wife has popped out a couple more kids and he's got a little toddler. She's like three years old. And she lets out the biggest scream. And so Will goes running in and there's a soldier attempting to take his daughter's doll that was in the room at the same time that the treaty was signed. And, you know, McLean says to him, he's like, man, like, it's it's my little girl. You really can't walk out of here with this doll. And the soldier's like, I have a little girl too. I'm going to bring this doll to her. And this three-year-old is sobbing. Like, this, this soldier is trying to steal her doll because this doll is witness, this stuffed Raggedy Ann doll is witness to history, more or less. So the soldier reluctantly gives the doll back to the little girl and he leaves empty handed because the room has literally been picked bare. There's only floor and walls. They've walked out with the rugs, the chairs, the artwork, the candlesticks, you name it, it's gone. What Will McLean notices when he walks in to the room is that the soldiers have left money. Probably not as much money as those items cost, but the gesture of paying for these items of history. We've taken these things from your home. You opened your home up to us. Let me pay you what little money I have. It was a kind gesture, but definitely not... You know, Will McLean is not the kind of guy who, you know, two bucks for my chair. That chair probably cost him, you know, 20 bucks, 200 bucks, whatever it was. It's probably a really expensive chair, but the soldiers left what they had in their pockets, left what, what they could afford to part with. So long story short, the guy whose front lawn 
the battle, the first actual battle of the Civil War, not talking Appomattox, not talking, excuse me, not talking Sumter, the guy whose front lawn the actual battle started on is whose living room the peace treaty was actually signed in. How's that for some weird history? This podcast already went a heck of a lot longer than I expected it to. So the things I had planned to talk about, what happens after the war, the effects of the war, we're going to have to wait on that till next time. So until next time, 